We do have a special speaker today. Mark Borsuk is going to come and open God's word to us. He is here with some of his family and some extended family as well. I'll let them him introduce them because I totally messed that up in the Sunday school hour. Uh, Mark, come on <laughs> and open God's word to us. I think I'm on now. That's great. It's wonderful to be here with you and... Um, we have, we live in Beijing, China. We lived there now for 14 years. It'll be 14 years in January. And we get very similar temperatures to what you get here, but uh, no snow. Hardly ever snow. So I, I am excited about the snow today. I know I'm probably about the only one in our family. It's the only family here that are all excited. Oh, we have another one. Good. <laughs> Um, but it's it's great to um, be here with you. Talked about our ministry in Sunday school, and and we have been there 14 years. We kind of do a fourfold ministry there in China, and I really want you guys are supporting us now, and we're just so thankful to be part of this church, to be part of a faithful church here in America that's proclaiming the word of God and letting the word of God control each and every one of your decisions here as a church, and I just praise the Lord for that, and we are so thankful to partner with you in ministry. In China, we do some publishing there and publish actually Christian books in mainland China. We're doing Bible study tools, putting commentaries, books, things that we can't publish, putting them on a website so a pastor can look up a passage and be able to study for a sermon. And then we, um, I also teach at several seminaries, and then we're involved there in a local church. And so that's kind of our ministry there. We are, um, both Charity and I grew up here in upstate New York. I was born down in Canandaigua. Charity was born up here in Rochester. Her dad, Ernie, who is here today, and um, her mom, Barb, uh, Ernie worked at Kodak for many years, and then Xerox. And um, so we are very very native to this area, and, and again, just thankful to have a church here in Rochester to partner with. My mom is here as well, Betty, and so it's a blessing to have family charity. And then um, I have five daughters, and one is now married, but with us, my wife, Charity. Don't get that confused. Some people do. And then um, Faith is eight years old, and Lydia is 16. And so, um, again, just blessed to be here. We'll be out after the service. If you want to ask any questions, usually people have questions about ministry in China, and um, so we'll be glad to answer those after um, after our time here. But go ahead and turn to Second Peter, our text today. Second Peter, chapter one, and we'll be looking specifically at verses three through through 11, but just to get the greeting in there as well, we'll be taking a quick look at um, verses 1 and 2. I, you see the title of this sermon, if I could put it in another way, maybe a negative way, I would, I would say, do you want to be ineffective or unfruitful in this life? Who wants to be ineffective or unfruitful. You know, I, I don't see many hands. None of us would say that. None of us would say we want to 
end up our lives and have really, even in God's eye, even though we enjoyed our lives, none of us would say we want God to say, well, your life was really unaffected, it was unfruitful. But I think sometimes unless we, we plan well, that, that can be the outcome. John Piper has, has a book, Don't Waste Your Life, and, and he has a story in there that really I think probably many of you have heard before, but he talks about how he was, he was, um, uh, he was speaking to a bunch of college-age students and he first told this, but he says, I will tell you what a tragedy is. I will show you how to waste your life. Consider a story from the February 1998 edition of Reader's Digest, which tells about a couple who took early retirement from their jobs five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Florida where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. At first, when I read it, I thought it might be a joke, a spoof on the American dream, but it wasn't. Tragically, that was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let the last great work of your life before you give an account to your Creator be this, playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells. That is a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. Over against that, I put my protest. Don't buy it. Don't waste your life. Peter, in Second Peter, much like Second Timothy for Paul, he has come to the end of his life. And he is concerned that his hearers might not waste their lives. Verse 13 through 15 of chapter 1 tells us that Peter believed the time of his death was near. And so he is writing a second and final time to these believers, writing one last impassioned plea to grow in Christian maturity, to guard against false teachers, and live holy lives in view of the fleetingness of this life and the finality of eternity. Towards the end of this letter, Peter says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? When I, I grew up here, and then we, was, we were down in Virginia for a while after I was married charity, and then we moved out to California. And one of the things about California are the fires. You've heard about the fires even just the last few years, just tremendous fires with, with houses lost and such destruction. But um, I remember the first time we're out there, we're moving out there, we're kind of scared because of the fires and the earthquakes and all the things you hear about California. And I just, I'll never forget, we're driving down, I think it was the, um, the 5 or the 170, I think it was. But we're driving, and all of a sudden, we're looking to the left, and the whole mountain is just on, on fire. And, you know, here on the East Coast, we put fires out, typically. 
you know, we don't just let them burn, but they, they just kind of let them burn, controlled burn. And, and it's funny because within a couple months, next time we see a fire, it's just like, oh no, there's another fire. There's going to be traffic. And, and we didn't think much about it. We were kind of used to the fires there in California. But if you think about the fires and, and these people are evacuated and they come back to their, their homes, they're let back in their neighborhoods after time, and they have no idea what they're going to find. You've seen the places where one house is standing, the next house is gone. And so they're coming back, and, and they look, and, and they see, you know, that their house has been burnt. It's burnt down, and, and they're going, and, and houses there are built on slabs of concrete, and so they're, they're looking to see, is there anything left here? And they're going through the ashes, and they come down to that slab, and they realize it's gone. There's nothing left. Everything has been destroyed. And you think about that feeling that they would have. You know, the loss of all earthly possessions is painful, but not compared with standing before the throne of God and having him sift through a lifetime of work, accomplishments, even ministry, and realizing there is nothing of substance. There is no fruit. Your life has been lived with no real effect. And so today we get a, a wonderful opportunity to study a passage that assures that that never happens. No matter where you are in life, no matter what's happened in your past, no matter how you feel about failures in your life, we have a way to, today to look at a passage that is so encouraging it is a passage that, that helps us to make sure that this never happens. Peter not only wanted his readers to be confident of their election to salvation, but also to be sure to have a fruitful and effective life by God's benchmark, by a standard that will last eternity. So we see there in, in verse the first two verses there, let me just read them. Simon Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, I know you've been blessed by studying First Peter with Pastor Dave and what a blessing that book is. And, and if I can just say what a blessing for you to have a faithful pastor, faithful pastors here. Um, many people think that missionaries have the hardest job in ministry, but I am more and more convinced that it is pastors that have the hardest job in ministry to be faithful day after day, week after week, to proclaim the word of God. And so I hope that you are very thankful for your pastors, and that you are encouragement to your pastors, that you've been studying through First Peter. And so, Simon Peter, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. The recipients to this letter are mentioned and described here in really general terms. They are those who have received a faith as precious as ours, as precious as the apostles, as Dan mentioned. The word received implies God's sovereign choice rather than anything they might have done to deserve such a gift. It is given through on the basis of the righteousness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter is writing to Christians says in chapter 3, verse 1, that this was the second time he was writing. If, if this is 
the follow-up letter to the same people as 1 Peter. He would have written many letters, but if this is, then it would be the same people as, as the letter of 1 Peter, which you have been studying. But we know one thing, they are believers, and they are dear to Peter. And he wants to encourage them. He's, he knows he is going to be dying soon. And so he wants one last chance to encourage these believers. And so as we come to verses 3 and 4, the first point in the outline is the promise of godliness. I should have included those points in your sheet there, but the first point is the promise of godliness. Those who have studied biblical counseling are quite familiar with verses 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. We have the promise of godliness. Verse 3 tells us that Christ's divine power has provided everything. We have everything that we need as believers for life and godliness. This is fundamental to under it is fundamental to understand that all we need for spiritual vitality and godly living are attainable through the knowledge of Christ. Or as another author put it, an intimate, full knowledge of Christ is the source of spiritual power and growth. This Christ is the one who called us or attracts us. Christ attracts people enslaved by sin, by his own moral excellence and the total impact of his glorious person. Verse 4 follows and and builds on this, telling us that through Christ's glory and excellence, that we see there in verse 3, he has given believers his very great and precious promises, enabling Christians to actually participate or become partakers in the divine nature. This is we take on God's very nature, making each one of us a new Creation. Honestly, this verse is beyond my ability to comprehend, much less explain to you. The same tension that we see in this verse is seen in verses like Galatians 2.20, where Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Edmund Hebert, one of the commentators that we have on the web there in China, says this, through the impartation of a new nature by the indwelling Holy Spirit, believers become partakers or sharers in the moral nature of God, enabling spiritual communion with God. Because, as verse 4 states, we are partakers of God's nature Nature, Christians can share in his moral victory over sin in this life and also share in his glorious victory over death in the next life. One way we participate in the divine nature is to participate in God's holiness. 
the righteousness of Christ, the holiness of Christ has been imputed, it has been credited to our account. In his first epistle, as you guys have seen, Peter will command us to be holy in our conduct, in our behavior. We are commanded to be holy as God is holy. This holiness is not only what has been given to us in Christ, what we have escaped to, but also what we have escaped from. These believers have escaped from what? In verse, again in verse 4, the corruption that is in the world. It speaks of the degenerative power that pervades all of unredeemed life and exercises a tyranny from which human effort knows no effective escape. We see that. We see the tyranny that unsaved people are under, the control that sin has on their lives. The only hope for the morally decaying world is the work of Christ, which allows sinful humanity to partake in the divine. Verse 4 ends by telling us the cause of this corruption is the sinful desires or the lusts, the evil passions that rule the human heart. Understanding our standing in Christ is the first key to a fruitful and an effective life. Keeping the focus on Christ and not us. This is the part of what we mean when we say things like living the gospel, the gospel for everyday life. We live in defeat when we focus on us doing better or having victory instead of focusing on the glory of Christ. We, have to, we are defeated when we live for our own achievement instead of focusing on that which Christ has already achieved for us. We see this in our church and in China. We'll ask somebody to share their testimony and they'll, they'll talk about how you know, maybe their mother was sick and, and some believer shared with them to pray for their, their mom and their mom got better and, and so now they believe in Christ. But, but they don't recognize the gospel. They don't recognize why they needed Christ. Sometimes we are even accused of, of putting too big of emphasis on sin. And if we only emphasize sin, the, the criticism is valid. But no one can understand the gospel. No one can understand the depth of the sacrifice of Christ. His glorious work on our behalf until they understand the depth of their own sins. Piper says, a couple quotes from that book, Piper says, not to show people the all-satisfying God is not to love them, to make them feel good about themselves when they were made to feel good about seeing God. is like taking someone to the Alps and locking them in a room full of mirrors. Christ is the glory of God. His blood-soaked cross is the blazing center of that glory. By it, he bought us every blessing, temporal and eternal. And we, and we don't deserve any. He bought them all because, Christ's cross, because of Christ's cross, God's elect are destined to be sons of God. Because of his cross, the wrath of God is taken away. 
Because of his cross, all guilt is removed and sins are forgiven. And perfect righteousness is imputed to us. And the love of God is poured out in our hearts by the Spirit. And we are being conformed to the image of Christ. All because of the cross of Christ. He continues, God made his son, Jesus Christ, a bloody spectacle of blameless suffering and death. This is what it costs to rescue us from a wasted life. Life is wasted if we do not grasp the glory of the cross, cherish it for the treasure that it is, and cleave to it as the highest price of every pleasure and the deepest comfort in every pain. Because of the cross of Christ, we are promised godliness. And so then we we move on. Then it says in verse 5, for this very reason. With a rich paragraph, Peter has laid down a perfect foundation for the appeal that follows. Those who have personally experienced, experienced these great realities must live in a way that Peter now describes. And so this is about Christ. It's not about us achieving or us doing more or or us trying to make ourselves better. It's about the focus, and it's so wonderful that we had communion today. The focus is about Christ, about what He has already done, about the completed work. And and, and verses 5 through 7 are going to talk about the pursuit of godliness. That's the second Point there, the pursuit of godliness. But it, it begins for this very reason. It's saying that, that we need to pursue godliness because Christ has already given us his righteousness, because Christ has already completed the work. So it says, verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For this very reason, an understanding of the person and work of Christ, of all that we have in Him, of all that we have through Him, will not cause us to be stagnant will not lead us to mediocrity in our spiritual walk. It will have the opposite effect. It will cause us to make every effort. In this phrase, Peter is calling for an attitude of eagerness and zeal, an abandonment of sluggishness, of self-indulgence. The added every underlines the comprehensiveness of the duty. Their diligence must be neither half-hearted nor selective. We are to make every effort. We are, and then it speaks of faith. Faith in Jesus Christ is what separates Christians from all other people. It is the foundation on which all these qualities, these following qualities, are to be laid in the Christian life. We are not asked to supply faith. Because that is the work of Christ in our hearts. It is God-given faith. Peter now urges us to pursue the addition of seven qualities. Seven qualities that we are to pursue, that we are to be 
examining our lives over to make sure that, that our lives are not ineffective, that our lives are not, not unfruitful. Fourth, first quality listed there is virtue. They can be translated moral excellence. We are, we are told to add to our faith the very first thing is moral excellence. As we see the world around and, and just the moral decay that is happening, it influences us. It impacts us. We are attracted to that. And he's saying you need to be vigilant to add to your faith, to add moral excellence to your faith. How are you doing in that? You know, one of the things that you can judge is, is this. Even, you know, you have some older people here, some wiser people, I should say, here. And I'm amazed at how many, how many people now, everybody uses this. You know, what are you using it for? How are you doing in moral purity? Teenager, how are you doing in that? What do you use your phone for? What do you listen to? What do you watch? goes for all of us. How are you doing in, in adding moral purity to, to your faith? And to moral purity, we're to add knowledge. This whole passage is about knowledge, right? Verse 2, knowledge of Jesus Christ. It just continually talks about knowledge here. Knowledge of who Christ is. The study of God. The study of the attributes of God. The knowledge of Christ and his work on our behalf. It's not just an intellectual pursuit, not just getting more knowledge, but it is spiritual knowledge which comes through the Holy Spirit and is focused on the person and word of God. To our knowledge, self-control. We must make every effort to practice self-control. The inner desire to control one's own, own desires and cravings. To have one's passions under control. To self-control, perseverance. We need to persevere in these things. I, I find it so easy to give up. So easy to give up in ministry or give up on this or give up on your Christian walk and it, or give up on devotions or whatever it is. It says, no, you need to be persevering in this. The word is frequently used in the New Testament to refer to consistency or steadfast. Endurance under a heavy load without giving in, without giving up. So we're, we're to be pers- persevering. And then fifthly, godliness. In a sense, these, these four lead towards the fifth. It leads towards godliness. It talks about piety, man's obligation of reverence towards God. It desires a right relationship with both God and with your fellow man. Godliness brings the sanctifying presence of God into all the experiences of life. So we see these these first five virtues pertain to one's inner life, are vertical and, and pertain to the relationship that we have with God. The last two then are more horizontal, our relationship that we have with other people. We see their brotherly kindness, brotherly kindness, this translates the, the Greek word Philadelphia. You know, I've forgotten all my Greek once I learned Chinese. I'm not sure I ever knew it, but, but I know Philadelphia, or at least. <laughs> right? So, brotherly kindness, a fervent, practical caring for others. Look around you. 
Do you have a fervent, practical caring for the people around you? Because that's what godliness will lead to. That's one of the things to test and to see how you are doing. Are you going to have a fruitful life, an effective life? Well, do you have a fervent, practical caring for others? First John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brothers, he's a liar. Right? First Peter talks about love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Paul would would say, love one another in Romans with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do you outdo one another in showing honor to each other? Showing honor to that difficult person that you deal with? Showing honor to the brothers and sisters that you meet each week here at church? And so we have seven things, seven things on which we can look and seven things to to test ourselves to make sure that that we're not ineffective, that we don't come to the end of our lives and and think, well, what happened? I I thought I was doing okay. Well, you can know that you're doing okay. And and I'm sure some, some of you, some of us, are looking at some of these and saying, boy, I'm really failing in this. Well, that's the point. You know, next year, you know, you don't have to make New Year's resolutions this year. Just take these seven things and work on them. And hopefully you'll see through the power of the Holy Spirit using the Word of God, you're going to see improvement in the air in these areas. That's what you need. That's what we all need to see, that we are growing in these areas. That's going to be the next part here, the assurance of godliness. The third point there, the assurance of godliness. If you're a linguist and can find another P, that means insurance. That would be helpful, but I couldn't. But the assurance of godliness, verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. A Christian possessing these qualities in increasing manner will result in spiritual effectiveness and productivity. He can be confident that his life will not be wasted. However, a believer that does not see progress in these qualities, in these seven areas, Scripture says he's ineffective. He's idle or or useless, and he's unfruitful. He's unfruitful in his knowledge of Jesus Christ. He's forgotten what 3 and 4 told us about, verses 3 and 4, all that Christ did for us. We don't do these things to become believers. We don't do these things to go to heaven. We do these things because of all that Christ has already done. We do them out of thankfulness. We do them out of worship for Christ because we understand all that He has saved us from. Verse 9 tells us that this person is blind. He's nearsighted. One with spiritual myopia is not magnifying the grace of Christ. Such a person has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Moreover, verse 10 tells us that this person cannot even be confident in his standing before God. 
Verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Being more diligent is the same word translated, make every effort. Be diligent. Be examining yourself. Make every effort to examine yourself. To be zealous and growing in these seven areas. Zealous in examining your life. Life so that you, you see growth in these areas. And in doing this, you make your calling that, that efficacious work of, of God to save a sinner. You make your calling and election sure. You can be confident that you are a believer in Christ. So many people, I might, oh, I don't know if I'm saved or not. I have to struggle with doubting my salvation. Well, well, look at these qualities. Are you growing in them? Are you maturing in them? Yeah, you might not be where other people are, but are you better than you were a year ago? And so then you can have that confidence, you can have that assurance of faith in Christ. Such a believer will not fail. And verse 11 ends, for this. In this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what Stephen saw as he was being stoned, as he looked up and, and saw the heavens opening and accepting him. Paul would say, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You know, a year ago when my dad passed away, I shared at the funeral, I just want to end with sharing the ending of what I shared for him. I said, talked about all his accomplishments and then talked about how he would be grieved if he had heard us telling all the wonderful things about him. said, so if you were to leave here today thinking my dad in and of himself was a good person, I know that would grieve him. We feel most acutely our own failings. We know our sin issues. We are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. And so this last week has been a tremendous blessing for me to meditate on the glorious gospel of Christ. To think of my dad face to face with that creator, that designer. On a Thursday morning, in a moment, to have seen Christ as he is, And then in that same moment to have the realization that he himself is like Christ, clothed in the righteousness of the one he is looking upon. The corruption of sin, the rags of his own righteousness are gone. And my dad in that moment became perfectly holy. All because of Christ. All because of the work of Christ. So as you examine yourself, as you, as you think about these, these seven things, moral purity, knowledge, perseverance, self-control, godliness, brotherly kindness, love, you examine yourself, it's not a competition. It's not something to work towards, to make sure. It's, it's the idea of Christ has done it all. And I'm going to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ when I enter heaven. 
And so I want to worship him. I want to serve him. And I want to make sure that I don't waste my life here on earth. Let's pray. Father God, we are just so thankful for Peter. So thankful that we could see him as, as a disciple. We could see him as a really an immature believer, as he was growing, as he was um, being mentored by you, by your son. And we are just so thankful to see him now at the end of his life and see how he has matured, see his focus, see his love for fellow men, for fellow believers. And Lord, I just pray for each of us that we would examine our lives, that we would examine our hearts, Lord, that we would examine our walk and that we would make sure that we would make every effort to be glorifying and honoring you because of all that your Son did for us. In Jesus' name, amen.